I, I love the worship this morning. Thank you, guys. And I was reading, I was watching a little clip during the week, and it, he was, there was a guy talking about the formative practices of things, of which worship is one of those. And he was saying that worship is what really gets the truth like deep inside into your bones. And I just really like that as a picture of, of um, what worship is. And it really, like, as we proclaim the truth, we, we put that, bring that. That's how what brings it into our bones and into our really, right into our being. I love that Rachel's been captured by the question of what's your why. I hope you guys have been captured by that question. That's, that's a great question. And I, I love the idea of growing. I want to grow. Uh, but grow, to grow means that uh, we also have to change, right? And uh, who thinks change is like easy and comfortable all the time? Like, I love my comfortableness. I love, love my comfortable zone. But I want to grow. I want to grow this church. I want to see God's church grow on, and I want to grow inside in myself. And that's why that what's your why question is so good. And this morning I want to talk about, among other things, the great why. The why at the foundation. The why at the very bottom of what we do. On the 10th of April, 1912... 3,327 passengers set out on the trip of their lives. They were aboard the greatest ship ever built, the Titanic, bound for New York. You know, we've seen the movie. We know the story. It didn't quite end up as they intended. The boat hit an iceberg, was taking on water, and it was quickly sinking. You know, the crew hadn't been prepared for this sort of event. This was the greatest boat ever. This was the unsinkable and they worked at getting the life rafts down, and they got some of them down, and they got some of them partially full. And if you were lucky enough to make it onto a life raft, your first job was to get as far away, or to get a safe distance away from the ship, so that you weren't sucked under as the boat sank. Now, for those who made it onto a lifeboat, you'd think that everybody would have just been getting ready as soon as that boat sunk, as soon as it was safe again, you know, you'd identify your most Mahi Drysdale-esque rower, put him on the oars, and you'd get ready, and you'd be racing back to see who else you could pick up. But there was no flurry. There was no race. Only one lifeboat, lifeboat number 14, went back into the cold and debris to look for survivors. Wow. I was amazed by that. How many of us think that we have made it into life's lifeboat through faith in what Jesus has done? How many of us think that we've been pulled out of the icy water by hope in what Jesus has achieved for us? How many of us know that there's safety and assurance, um, know the safety and assurance and peace that Jesus brings, that we know that we've got a hope that won't end? And the really challenging question is for those with yeses, what are we doing about it? How many of us are going back into the cold and into the debris and in the water to lend a hand to others? Everyone needs everlasting hope, and this hope is only found in Jesus. And the great news is this. If you're a Christian, you have everything you need to be able to go out and start doing some rescue. You have everything you need. You've, your boat might feel like it's tipping left and tipping right. You might feel seasick. You might feel like your boat is really all that you can manage right now. But if you're in a boat, you're equipped with everything you need, 
and you're in a boat that's not going to sink. Where this illustration falls over a little bit is that most people that don't know God probably don't think that they're drowning. Most people don't think that they're freezing and don't perhaps think that they're in need of rescue. I read a really profound thought this week, and it was that young people becoming teenagers today have never lived outside of a culture which uh, celebrates every, almost every and almost all forms of self-expression. And in some ways, this is, this is obvious. You know, the word digital natives is, is bandied around. Kids are brilliant at technology. You know, they, if you need someone to fix your Wi-Fi, who are you going to ask? Obviously, a young person. But what this article talked about and what I hadn't really continued on in that is that they, they've never lived outside of a culture that totally affirms and, and celebrates um, all forms of self-expression, and they've never lived outside of a culture where your job is to look inside, figure out who you are, and then go and do that to the fullest. That's always been their heroic sort of story, their heroic narrative. And there's been a lot of chatter at the moment around terms that until recently might have been a misnomer. You know, we've got post-truth as the word of the year. The American election was riddled with fake news. And after that, we've got, we've got the new one, alternative facts. But that, you know, we might laugh at this, but this is the culture that um, your kids are growing up in and that society is, is moving toward. In June last year, we hosted a combined event at Heratonga Christian Centre. We had six or seven youth groups from around Abaha come and join, and we um, had sports and a barbecue, and we had a group from Hamilton come to share the gospel through song and drama and dance and spoken word. And after they delivered the message of the gospel, we saw some kids respond, and that was great. We really, I was really encouraged by that. But another conversation I had that day really struck me and has stayed with me. One of our youth had brought one of their friends to come along, and he said, hey, can you talk to my friend about um, the message and that sort of thing? So I went and said hello, and hey, what do you think of that? And this kid says, oh, I really like that part about Jesus, because I, I didn't realize that there was a way to sort of deal with the bad stuff that I'd done. You know, so far, so good. I was like, yeah. And I said, oh, so did you understand that when you put your faith in Jesus, that he's good to forgive you, and um, that's... You know, did you understand that? And then he said this. He said, oh, yeah, that's what he said that it meant. But then I took it to mean. And then he went on and gave his own explanation. And, and he gave his own meaning to what he had heard. Now, that was a real wake-up to me that a 13-year-old wouldn't respond with, a, like, an agreeance or a disagreeance. His response was to make up his own meaning to what he'd heard. So how can we respond to this? How can we respond to this culture? How can we be people on life like to giving out hope and life in this culture? Because this culture presses on Christianity in a number of ways. You know, marriage and sexuality, really obvious examples. But some are much more subtle. Take happiness, for example. A really massive challenge to youth today and to all of us is that when people justify something on the basis of it making me happy, that's like an untouchable reason in society today. It's totally inappropriate to disagree with, and it's almost as inappropriate not to affirm that. And it's subtle, because we do want people to be happy. 
But Christians can't affirm everything, and they even have to disagree, because we know that it doesn't make you happy in the end. So how can we respond? I invite you to turn um, or scroll to 2 Corinthians 5, technology, love it. 2 Corinthians 5, um, verses 11 to 21. says this, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are taking an opportunity, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Make him who had no sin to be sin, sorry, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's massive. There's lots in there. It's deep and it's dense. And let's not use that as an excuse to switch off. Let's stay with me. I want to talk about four things from this passage. And I'm going to be coming back to that, so maybe keep, keep it available there. I reckon that this, I want to talk about four things. Number one, I think this gives us the correct perspective to start from if we want to reach into people's lives. Number two, what does it mean to be an ambassador? Number three, how can we be an ambassador? How do we get started and how do we carry on? And number four, what is the correct motivation? So starting first, the correct perspective. Paul writes in verse 11, because we know what it is to fear the Lord. And then in verse 16, we no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. If we fear God, we can't be happy if somebody takes on something that we know is sin as their identity. You know, we can't be happy when our friend who already gives 120% of his effort and time to his career gets another promotion. You know, we, we can't be happy with that if we know that it's to the detriment of their family. But how do we live this out? How do we respond without shrinking our faith down just to being a purely personal thing? How do we reach others to share our hope? I think the first place to start is to remember that God loves our friends and our family and our co-worker and our neighbor far more better and vastly and more thoroughly than we do. 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4 says this, This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. If God wants all people to be saved, then he's pursuing all people. And we see that in verse 18, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us this ministry of reconciliation. 
that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Reconciling means to restore relations between, and it means to make one account consistent with another. So a ministry of reconciliation is working to restore, to bring two together, people to God. And I find this idea really freeing and helpful because it means that I'm not starting from scratch. If God's reconciling the world to himself, then my job isn't to start from nothing. It's just to join in with what he's doing. And that's where being an ambassador is a really helpful idea. You know, we're in a world of brand ambassadors these days where people who exhibit and um, display the lifestyle or the look that a company wants to um, be associated with, they get money and they throw up the right hashtags and they go to the right parties and wear the right gear. And that's something of what we're talking about of being an ambassador because we need people to know what we stand for. But I think we are more ambassadors in a diplomatic sense. You know, an ambassador represents a country's interests in another country. And they advocate for that country's behalf. This type of ambassador is looking for connection points. And our job as Christ's ambassadors is to look for connection points. When we see where God is working in a person's life, when we see where God is knocking on somebody's heart, that's a connection point that we are able to enter into, and that's how we can reach somebody to speak on Jesus' behalf. We saw this, and you see this approach modeled throughout the New Testament. You see Paul speaking on Mars Hill to the people of Athens. He didn't go and just say, hey, you know, you've got these 26 gods. They're all rubbish. Like, this is the God. What was his connection point? He saw that there was an empty shrine to an unknown God, and he started from there. He said, oh, hey, I'll tell you who that unknown God is. That was his connection point. Philip on the road, um, on the desert road, talking to the Ethiopian, you know, he ran alongside. What was his connection point? He heard and recognized that the guy was reading from the scroll of Isaiah. He didn't just go up to him and say, hey, so like we're both in the desert together. That's not very helpful. He said, hey, do you understand what you're reading? He saw the connection point. And these connection points can be really simple. Jared Coffey, who's out with Frequency today, he was telling us a story last year about a connection point that he took up. He was at Tech and he'd been that brand ambassador. He'd, he'd showed that he displayed um, you know, what he stood for to his classmates. And he was in a conversation and one of the guys at Tech had said to him, oh, but yeah, I'm going to hell, eh? You know, that's, that's a interesting way to sort of bring up, thing to bring up in a conversation. Jared could have left it there, or he could have said, you know, something encouraging, but he saw that as a connection point, and he said, oh, why is that? And the guy said, oh, you know, you don't know the things that I've done. You don't know all the, all the stuff that I've done. And Jared, as, as an ambassador, said to him, he said, nah, man, that's like, none of us are good enough. That's why Jesus had to die. That's, that's taking an opportunity. That's being an ambassador. And I guess it goes without saying, but people don't always accept this invitation. Um, I had a friend who was uh, seven months, I had a friend uh, who moved into a new house, and um, it was seven months, his partner was seven months pregnant with their first child, and um, that was when they moved into their new house. um, Thank you. (laughs) She had a very, um, very early baby is what I was trying to get to. And I, so I saw that as an opportunity. And I was like, wow. I texted him, wow. Like, someone like me has got to say that God's like, really looking after you if that, 
of that, like to see you move in in this perfect timing to have this event happen in your life. And he texts back straight away, I'd say it was my good planning. I mean, fair enough, that's a, good, that's a pretty sick comeback, but my job is to advocate um, where I see opportunities. So how do we see these connection points? I think that it takes practice. So where can we start? Henri Nouwen is a French Catholic priest and writer and theologian. And he suggests in one article that we can start by leading people to gratitude. He says this, Resentment makes you cling to the failures or disappointments and complain about the losses in your life. Our ministry is to help people gradually let go of resentment, to discover that right in the middle of pain there is a blessing. Right in the middle of tears, that is where the dance starts and the joy is first felt. Can we start? Can we meet the people in our life that we know are bitter and resentful? And can we encourage them toward gratitude? You know, all of us will know people that have got a lot to be thankful for. They've got a lot of material blessings. They've got um, everything. It looks like their life sorted out. And maybe they'd even admit that they've got a lot to be thankful for. Is that an opportunity where we can point them toward the person to be thankful to? Another idea, I once asked a minister that I really admire for advice, how are you able to give prophetic words to people so often? And he said to me, oh, I don't often get a prophetic word just out of the blue, but I do often see somebody who needs encouragement, see someone who's looking down. So I go and I offer them encouragement, and that's when God drops something into my head to share with them. Can we be ready to offer encouragement to the people that we meet and see what God will do with that opportunity? Not sure if you might have squirmed earlier when I was talking about disagreeing with people or, or not affirming people. You know, another one of the great um, stories or the cultural values of today is that you can't tell anyone else how to live. And you might have thought, oh no, where's he going with this? Like, check out this arrogant guy that thinks he's nailed it. But when we start these conversations, we're trying to get somewhere, okay? Paul writes in verse 11, because we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. You know, I like persuade. I like that. It doesn't say because we know what it is to fear the Lord, we tell everybody how wrong they are. It doesn't say because we know what it is to fear the Lord, we make sure that we win every argument. But, so we persuade. But persuade them of what exactly? We are trying to persuade them that the gospel is true. Romans 1.16 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. It's the gospel that the Bible says has the power to rescue, that has the power to bring salvation. And it might surprise you, but a lot of good things are not the gospel. The gospel is actually something quite specific. The gospel is not loving your neighbor. The gospel is not helping the sick. It's not giving to great causes. It's not serving your community. All of these things are excellent things that our lives should be full of, but they're not the gospel. The gospel is not encouraging people to do the right thing or be a good person. The Greek word for gospel means good news or good tidings. It's a public announcement of something that has happened. It's the good news of a one-off event that Jesus has died and rose again and that he offers us his perfect record if we believe in him. And Paul finishes this passage in 2 Corinthians with this. 
God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So our aim as ambassadors is to see connection points. And then in those connection points, to look for where we can share the good news, to share the gospel. Because that's what the Bible says has the power in it. You know, if we want to grow as a church and as people, I think we're going to need to share this message more. Does anyone agree? Studies show that about 2% of us, 2% of Christians share the gospel regularly. And I think there's two main reasons for that. Louis Delcour was a soldier, a French soldier in the First World War. And during the war, he was given some home leave. And so he went home to the village of Mui to visit his mother. In the midst of being on home leave, he accidentally overstayed the amount that he was allowed to have. And so rather than face the shame and the embarrassment of returning to his regiment late and whatever other consequences that went with that, he decided to become a deserter. And he convinced his mum to hide him in the attic and to feed him so that he wouldn't be found out. This is a true story. Amazingly, they kept this up for 21 years. When his mother died in August 1937, and without his mother to support him, he obviously couldn't keep it going, so he walked down to the local gendarmerie, to uh, the police station, to hand himself in. Can you imagine what sort of man, what a man would look like after 21 years living in the attic? The policeman that received this man, he was just aghast. He was, he was amazed. He looked at him with total dismay. And he said, haven't you heard? All deserters were pardoned years ago. Louis had freedom, but he didn't know it. And he'd eked out this miserable existence in the attic because he hadn't laid hold of his freedom. And I think this speaks to us because Louis lived in the attic because he had done wrong and because he was afraid. Guys, we can't let sin hold us back any longer. I know the feeling of not living the way that you want to, the way that you know that you should. I know the feeling. But we're Christians and not idealists. Our salvation doesn't hinge on our performance. It's entirely based on what God has done. And he has totally pardoned us. It says in verse 17, we are new creations. The old has gone, the new has come. And we can't let fear hold us back either. The Bible says in 1 Peter, perfect love drives out fear. What is perfect love? Well, again, this illustration isn't quite right because the president of France was able to pardon all deserters with the stroke of a pen in a sitting of parliament. And we're more than pardoned. We're forgiven. This is significant because forgiveness is never free. Forgiveness is never free. Forgiveness is when one party absorbs the cost rather than make the other person pay the cost of the debt that they owed. And God didn't just write off our sin with the stroke of a pen. He took, Jesus took all the debt that we owed and he suffered our punishment to reconcile us, to make two accounts match. 
And this perfect love has got to be the great why under all of our specific whys. This has got to be the base of things. It says perfect love drives out fear. We need to think about and meditate on this perfect love until it drives out our fear. You know, we can't be fearful of what people will think or maybe even that we'll get it wrong. Last week I was having a discussion at work with a colleague and we were talking about um, things of justice and, and that sort of thing in politics. And he said, oh, you've got to start from the assumption that everyone is good. You know, at their core, everybody's good. And to me, this was a chance to be an ambassador because I don't think a, a, a Christian just can't agree with that. And I said, oh, you know, I, I can't agree with you. I think at their very core, people are self-interested and that they might be good as long as it suits them. But otherwise, um, I think that they'll do what they can and what they need to do. And, and so we had this discussion and I knew that he'd been brought up in a boarding school and um, he had some knowledge of, of what Christians think and, and that sort of thing. And so I brought up original sin and said, hey, we inherited this thing. Um, and so we talked about that and um, cleared up some Catholic ideas maybe or like gave my view instead of the Catholic view of a few things. And um, so our discussion carried on and I sensed that this was an opportunity. And so I said to him, oh, and by the way, that's why Christianity falls over without the virgin birth. And he's like, oh. And so we carried on, and I was able to get through and explain to him the whole Christian message, the whole message of the gospel. You know, this story isn't finished yet. Like, each day since, there's been something that's brought, him up, brought this up, and he'd sort of thought, oh, that's right. Like, yeah, that reminds me. Of, even a question in the five-minute quiz, he's like, oh, that, like, that reminds me of our conversation again. But I've done all that I can to be an ambassador. And I've presented the reason for the hope that I have. Because everybody needs everlasting hope, and that hope is only found in Jesus Christ. You know, in this age, we need to make sure that we're seeing with the right perspective. We need to check the places that we've fallen for the world's point of view, and check. And we need to remember that God loves our friends and our family so much more thoroughly and better than we do. Because of this, we know that our job is, has already started, and our job is to get in and jump on in what God is doing and advocate and be ambassadors to see where God's looking and knocking on people's hearts. And to see these connection points is going to take practice, but we can start. We've got three places, three places to start. We can look to see where we can bring people to gratitude. We can help people see that there's someone to be thankful to, Rather, there's a person to be thankful to. And we can look to encourage people wherever we go. When we find these connection points, we're looking to share the gospel because that is what has the power unto salvation. I'd like to ask three questions to close. This is a photo of me and two of my happy places. We've got skateboarding on the right and delicious beverages on, no, on the right. And Anyway, you might see there, if you look at those photos, you might see someone who's probably maybe slightly too old to be skateboarding, um, but yet joyful. You might see a Wellington coffee snob on the right. I don't see myself like that. I see myself like this. Started, we started with the analogy of a lifeboat, and I want to finish with it. This is how I see myself in those places. You know, I have so many chats at skate parks and at cafes. And these are places where I go to be an ambassador. 
So first question, where can you go in the next week to be on the lookout for people in the water? Where can you go? Second question, have you seen yourself in the story of Louis Del Cur? Do you need to spend time and do business with God and, and repent of living in the attic and take hold of that freedom that he's offered to you? And the last question, if hearing this gospel has really touched you for the first time, I just really encourage you to grab someone here and uh, seek to talk about that with someone else. Can I pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you, Lord, that we stand on your gospel, Lord. We stand on what you have done. We stand on this message of reconciliation, Lord, that we couldn't make our account match what we owed, Lord, so you sorted that out for us, and you took our debt, and you paid it, God. I pray that that would be the great why in our hearts, Lord. That would be the great why that would be at the foundation, Lord, of, of how we live and act, Lord, that we would think about and meditate and understand how big that love was, because if we do, that's going to drive us, and we... It will drive out fear and it will take us to being your ambassador in the places that we go. So I pray for everyone here, Lord. Do you encourage us? Would you let us have eyes to see the opportunities that are before us to, to be your men and your women of Christ? Thank you, Lord. Pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.